This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook and at trevorjamesflutes.com. Hello everybody and welcome this week to Talking Flutes Extra with me, Jean-Paul Wright. As you can probably hear, I'm not where I usually do my podcast recordings. I'm actually sat in my car on my way down to visit Claire in her beautiful seaside home in Hove, East Sussex in England. And you know why this week is after over 220 podcasts and spanning sort of four and a half years, I realised that we actually haven't introduced ourselves. We've interviewed so many people for this podcast, so many wonderful flute players, musicians, and people outside the industry, that we haven't actually introduced ourselves. So Claire, who has a very illustrious background in flute playing, flute teaching, I'm going down to surprise her. Well, she knows roughly what I'm going to do. What made her start the flute, her various influences as a player and as a teacher, and what she's doing now. There is a train strike today. So the roads from my beautiful town where I live, Tunbridge Wells, are chock-a-block. They are completely full up with people trying to navigate their way to work, to school, so I actually don't know how long it's going to take me to get down there. Normally, on a good run, it would take me one and a half hours. This morning, who knows? I just hope Claire has the coffee ready. Right, I've arrived. Dogs, I've arrived, yes. I've got a right royal welcome by Claire's dogs. And she's just filling out my car parking space. Because in this beautiful town of Hove on the sea... They don't welcome strangers like me from a different part of the country. You have to get a permit to park. <laughs> good morning, my dear. Good morning, good morning. How are you? I am very well, good. thank you. Good. Very well. well, the dogs are very excited. They are. There's um, only two here. Where's the other one? Um, the other one, the set alone, has gone off now. She's oh, OK. Yeah, I'm she's, not that important, then. No, no. Oh. <laughs> You're looking then. very suntanned. Have you been away on holiday? No. I've been working in the garden. <laughs> <laughs> and I choose the day to come down when it's the sun isn't out. Yeah, well, it's been fantastic just today that the, um, the cloud is here. Louis, Louis, come here. Louis. Right. Louis wants I to escape. To, yeah, so I need to go and put my parking pass in and bring all my gear out so okay. we can start podcasting. I need a registration. That's to stop me getting a parking ticket. <laughs> <laughs> I've had parking tickets here before. <laughs> I'll just go and get my stuff clear. <laughs> just hope they haven't... Uh, haven't got me already. They're very keen, the parking attendants down in Hove. And as I walk down here, I pass Rolf, who is busy mending somebody's car. Rolf is Claire's husband. And he seems to be very handy at this type of thing. He's very handy and clever at many things, unlike me, who seems, seems to be handy and clever at uh, virtually nothing. Anyway. 
that's my parking permit in there. That keeps me out of trouble with the parking attendants. Right, I'm going to have to switch off because I've got all my recording stuff. So, catch you in a minute. Right, coffee on. Ah, the most important thing. Hello there. Whoops. Yeah, you see? That's just to prove to people we do drink coffee. <laughs> <laughs> right, I better pack and get set the stuff up. So, we're sat down in Blair's lovely, lovely house. The door's open, and you might be able to hear the building works going across the road. And I think Rolf, your husband's taken the dogs out, so we might be safe for a few minutes. The reason I've come down is after 220... Blah, 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 I've, I've forgotten how many we've done, but four and a half, nearly five years of podcasts going out every week. We've interviewed most of the... Well, many of the great and good of the flute world and also those from outside our sphere. But I've never actually interviewed Claire and I know this is going to be very uncomfortable for Claire because she's very self-effacing and you know she's moved down to start a new life a few years ago from where she used to live in a beautiful place called Chipperfield in just above uh, London sort of slightly north of London and I thought let's do a podcast on Claire you, 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 um, she's just looking at me now and it's it's not a very comfortable thing for her to be in. I'm going to make it as uncomfortable as possible. <laughs> <laughs> but you're a valued part. I mean, if I was trying to do this podcast myself, it wouldn't have been successful as it is now. You bring your life's experience of being a woman in a flute-playing world many years ago, before, well, whilst it was still really, really hard. And... You know, and I know over the years we've chunked little bits of your experience in, but in this podcast I just want to sort of throw some questions at you that we've thrown at others. And if you don't want to answer, just deflect back. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I know this is very uncomfortable, but our audience sort of, and I know you're going to say, I know you're going to say, are we going to do one on you then? Uh, I think you'll have to fight to do one on me. But, um, I think we will next time. <laughs> this is called getting your own back. <laughs> but we're building this website. We want the podcasts to last. Because once we get to the end, and we don't know when this, is, this will naturally evolve, we've been doing one a week for the last four and a half years. We have plans to, to make the gap slightly larger to enable us to continue going on, because how many, how many subject matter can you speak about on Talking Flutes? Well, we've done a, we've done a lot. Um, but, you know, there's always something to talk about, but we want to keep it relevant and interesting. Yeah, and you don't think yourself relevant, but you're, you're the co-host on this podcast channel. <laughs> She's not happy. <laughs> so, Claire, Claire, welcome to Talking Flutes Extra this week. <laughs> Very kind of you to have I, I wish this was on video. <laughs> <laughs> right, let me take you back. Let me take you back to when you first started. I've known you for many, many years now, and I know you as a very driven individual. What made you choose the flute? Um, I didn't want to play the piano. <laughs> <laughs> so the piano was the only option, was it, at the time? Yeah. Uh, I, I'd started with... We've probably mentioned this in a previous podcast of many years We've ago. We've probably mentioned a lot of it, but I want to con oh, put it all, all in right, to get right. one go. Um, I was given piano lessons when I was aged um, six. 
and it was at a, at a, uh, a convent primary school, and the, the nun who taught piano was a scary. difficult... <laughs> scary? <laughs> very scary. Very, very scary. And so I thought, well, when she comes out to call me... For, the, the lessons were in the lunch break. When she comes out to call for me, I'll pretend to fall over. Um, maybe I'll get out of my lesson. So she called me. I ran out a tree trunk. I fell over. I broke my arm. So that got me out Gosh. of the... Yes, I actually broke my arm. Breaking, I, I still breaking remember, your arm to get out of piano yeah, lessons. Six years old. I remember vividly the ambulance coming and whisking wow. me away. <laughs> so it was quite... But, you know, it was not a pleasant experience. It was all to do with the teacher putting you off rather than the teacher encouraging. So my parents didn't ask me again until I was 11, well, would you like to have piano lessons? <laughs> no, thank you, because of my bad experience. They said, well, what would you like to, to do? What would you like to play? And I'd heard a flute, someone playing the flute down the road, literally that week. don't know who it was, I just heard this sound and found out it was a flute. So I said, oh, flute. So they said, great. So I went to have lessons at school with who, uh, the lovely old chap who was a clarinet player. He had tuna day but one for me, and he had an old Rudelkart flute, and he had tea and tea cakes. It was in school. So after the lessons are finished, we'd, I'd go and he'd pour me a cup of tea, he'd give me a tea cake, and we'd play from tuna day. How very refined. And he'd never taught me anything except it was lovely. It was just, he was so relaxed. Such a nice chap. And I taught myself, I just worked through tune a day. And each week you'd go, well, that's lovely. How's your tea cake? I just loved the feel of the flute and the sound of the flute. And that's how it continued until, oh, I didn't, I don't think I had lessons with him for that long. I think he's, he stopped and then I moved to school. Something like that. We moved from Manchester back down to northwest London. I, oh, no, sorry. No, I did. I moved on to, uh, sorry, sorry, forgetting, uh, my most influential teacher, Vivian Lin. That was in Manchester. Vivian Lin? Vivian Lin. So I went from this, my lovely chap at the school, to have private lessons with Vivian Lin. Mm -hmm. And I think my parents paid £10 for a flute, which we thought was a bargain at the time. And I was with her for a few years, and then I moved down to London and continued. Where has the drive come from? Where when you become aware that you have this sort of drive for the flute? Uh, that's, that's interesting because when we moved down to London, I went from a, a, a grammar school, which is a selective school. You, you didn't pay for it, it was still free, but you had, to, you had to do an exam, didn't you, at the 11 plus. Yeah. And if you passed the 11 plus, you went to the grammar school. And if you failed your 11 plus, you went to what's called the secondary school. Yes. Which, and they made it feel like first and second yeah. class. And it was the most terrifying time when you had to do the exam. And I was in this grammar school, and when I, when I was age 15, we moved down south. And I went to the local comprehensive or secondary school, because there wasn't any other option mm -hmm. at, at that time. And it was the most awful experience of my life. I, I was so unhappy, in the depths of despair. I nearly went back and lived with friends in Manchester to go back to, the, back to my original school. But the, the one thing that saved me was the flute, because I could sort of lose myself in the flute. So I'd, when I got to the last two years of school, I would go and sign on at school and go home practice. Mm -hmm. And I was determined to find a way out of that school life. Even to the point where, you know, when they were talking about people applying for university, and I said, I don't want to go to university, I want to go to a music college. 
And they said, well, we don't know anything about music colleges. You need to go to university. Because that's what people did, mm. you know, if you were going on to further education. Mm. And so I, I had to find out for myself about music college. I had to apply for myself. I had to go and do the auditions. And by the time they said, you really need to sort something out, I'd already sorted out, done the audition, got the place. So I was very single-minded that no one's going to do this for me. I have to do it for myself. And that's what I did. And you became quite obsessed with the instrument and practising, didn't you? Um, You've said um, in the past that you spent hours, many, many, yeah, in fact, too long practising. I spent six hours a day practising the flute. Because I knew how much I needed to improve, I wanted, I've always wanted to do things as well as I could. And if I didn't, want, if I didn't do it well, it wasn't worth doing. That's, it was that sort of mentality. And I just put the blinkers on and I practised. And, and there are lots of, of negatives about that as well. I think you need to give yourself time off. Uh, and you need to give, give yourself permission. That's what I've always told my students, is that playing an instrument and, and studying is like work. You say, you know, you might start at 9 o'clock in the morning and you stop for lunch and then you go back to work. Mm-hmm. And then you might say, well, every Wednesday morning I'm going to give myself half a day off. And you give yourself permission. And if you've worked the other days, you feel wonderful about that time off. I never did that. I just, I just worked. I always thought you, you get what you work for. If you put in the hours of practice, then you'll improve. And for me, I thought the sacrifice of hard work paid off because I achieved all the things I wanted to achieve because I worked hard to do it. And I might have been a terribly boring person, but I knew I could, I could play the flute and I could, in comparison to other players at the time, I knew I was doing well. So for me, that justified all the work I put in so I would work even harder. The world has come a long way since you were at music college. Were you aware at the time the lack of opportunities for female flute players or were you just blindly going for it? No I I think it was pretty obvious the landscape at that time was very much male driven. It was definitely far more difficult and you had to be of a certain character or personality to sort of get on. I was shy, I wasn't gregarious. It took me a lot to be brave enough to go and talk to people, useless on the telephone, which is what we had those days. We didn't have uh, uh, mobile phones and computers to find out who you should talk to. So I wasn't as successful as... There's a helicopter coming over, by the way. Helicopter, yeah. Yeah. And I think that if if I'd been in London, I'd have had far more opportunity than I had in Manchester. So for Manchester, I had to work a lot harder. We were mentioning to ourselves before we did this podcast that I remember playing flute course at the Wickle Hall with Jimmy Galway, and his agent at the time was Michael Emerson. And Michael Emerson said to me, you need to live in London, and then I can help you, which was, like, you know, mind-blowing. But I couldn't move. I, had no, I hadn't, didn't have the, the nerve. Mm. I was too frightened of moving from my place of security and safety and going down to the big smoke to London, so I, I didn't. Was it hard not to be to feel that sort of crushing, male-dominated world? Oh, yes, it was. I mean, my, uh, my first bit of playing with the LSO, the London Symphony Orchestra, and that was funny in, its, in itself because the phone call from the chap who organised the players for the London Symphony Orchestra, he rang me up and said, oh, hello, it's such such a person. I thought, is, I think, is, is that really... And, um, you know, wouldn't have liked to come and play with us. Uh, 
are you free these dates? And it was extraordinary. I mean, you know, I nearly fell over. And that particular first session of playing, there were no women in the orchestra. And it was absolutely terrifying. But I got it because I went and did an audition and Peter Lloyd heard me and said to the organiser, get Claire in to do some work with us. So how lucky is that? And it was, it, you know, contacts, people hearing you at the right time, at the right time of your career is, is hugely important. So you're aware of the, the very sort of sexist nature of the business. Yes, oh, absolutely. But for Peter to say that back then, that was sort of, it's almost as though Peter viewed you as a flute player rather than you as a no, woman. Absolutely. No, Peter Lloyd was very welcoming and looked after you. You know, he made sure that you were, you were, you were okay. But, you know, the social aspect around the concerts were very, very difficult. Yeah. Because you did feel like sort of an alien. <laughs> <laughs> it's so different now. Oh, thankfully. The landscape is so different now. Thankfully. And, you know, the music world... In fact, we, they, you, you look at a lot of orchestras and women, they're there. Mm. And whereas, even when I was growing up, most flute sections, well, in fact, I think maybe every flute section I was aware of was all men. Yeah. And now you, you see all women flute sections and you get the job now based on your ability rather than your sex or orientation. And I just think the world's come a long way, hasn't it? Yeah. I went to an international competition in Madeira, which you had to do a big recording for and send in the tape and I got picked to go through there were just six of us from around the world mm -hmm. and the winner was on the panel was Julius Baker and Ram Powell. good grief and the chap who won I mean I think a lot of us were a little surprised a fabulous player but just surprised that yeah. he particular one and I, th I can't remember. I think I can't remember whether it was Rampal or Baker, but one of them said, "I think it was maybe Julius Baker." Said, "Well, it was his time to win something," and I, ah. I, I was so shocked. I was so shocked. But that was the nature of things in those days, yeah. you know. And again, it's very, it's very different now. Those days, the, the sort of the big gurus were there to help ease people's way into yeah. into playing, and. He thought they thought that the time for this particular winner to to do that, but it was very hard on the rest of us. And when you were teaching at the academy, what was the the makeup of your students? Were they still like the flute in itself, largely female dominated, or did you have some guys there as well? Yeah, we had some guys, but mostly it's female dominated now. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, very much so. What do you think the reason is behind that? Because it was when I was growing up. The reason I chose the flute, I didn't. The, the flute was the only thing that was left in the music room. Everything we went into music into classroom, and we were taught music for our first lesson at secondary school. And they said, "Well, choose an instrument." And I was late in. I got in late for. I was think I was being lazy down the corridor, and all that was left was a couple of battered drumsticks and this long silk, this sort of mm. tarnished tube. Mm. And that was the reason I started it. But. Well, I think, you know, in, in, in my early days, there were no really prominent female players. I mean, Atara and Sue Milan yeah. were the main people. I didn't really come into contact with them much. Not at all with Sue Milan. Atara was teach, taught for, for maybe a couple of terms or a year at the Royal Northern. And I was too petrified to go and talk to her. And she, you know, rushed through the, through the corridors of the Northern like a whirlwind. And she was sort of a larger-than-life figure, full of life and vitality and, and excitement and scary, you know. Mm. So 
didn't really talk to her, but nowadays there are lots of really prominent female flute players for people to aspire to and, and want to copy. And that's, that's what happens then. So you get more, more girls picking up the flute and following their dreams. Moving on to a slightly different area is influences in your life. Well, obviously we lost the great William Bennett Wibb hmm. not so long ago. But you knew Wibb as a grown-up. So influencing on you, you'll have to tell me, one that you knew Wibb on a, on a personal teaching uh, mm. basis because you both taught together at both professors at Royal Academy of Music in London. Mm. Who were your influences and why? Um, the, the first recordings I heard were Rampal and Marion and Nicolet. Mm, they're three more very Nicolet, different, aren't they? More Nicolet than Ma Marion, I think, at that time. I think it wasn't Nicolet. So Rampal and Nicolet, and just the most wonderf wonderful recordings. But it was very hard for me to actually find recordings. Mm. You know, you'd go to the HMV in London, you couldn't find really flute <laughs> recordings. It was, there was so little, and you couldn't, you couldn't sort of go on Spotify and, and, <laughs> and listen to flute players. It was just... Yeah. You, you could go in the library... Uh, and again, very few people. I also had a lovely recording of Elaine Schaefer. Correct. Um, and, you know, that was, again, it was a shock. I mean, it took me a while. It just said, I remember it just said on the recording, E. Schaefer, and I thought it was a, it was a bloke. Yeah. Until I sort of properly looked and thought, oh, my God, no, it's Elaine. So that was, that was wonderful. So they were my early influences. And then my first flute summer school was was Wib. Right. And the first time I played to him, I nearly passed out with, with fear, with fright, with nerves, because I, there was a lot I didn't understand. I was sort of very early on in my flute career. Um, very young as well. I think I was only 15. So I really knew nothing at all. But of course, his concerts were just mind-blowing. And then I went every year to the flute course and had more and more lessons and um, he just transformed the way I thought about things and the way, the way I played. And I, I tried to develop a sound that was like him. That's my whole purpose in life was to sound like Wib. And then, of course, Jimmy comes along. Yeah, whirlwind. Oh, so, of course, he was... Actually, just before Jimmy came along, Jeff Gilbert, of course. Oh, yes. So he was also at the summer school, and he was so matter-of-fact and great technically and to point you in the right direction, encouraging, and just the most wonderful, wonderful gentleman. And then, of course, Jimmy came onto the scene, and, again, I'd never heard anything like that, the complete opposite of, mm. of Wibb. And I was mesmerised, I and mean, I just loved what he did. And that was the first time I started here, sort of more as he once he'd, once he'd left the Berlin Phil and, and was doing more solo things. And then he started to do more crossover things. And then I realised that with flute you can do all sorts of music, because there was one thing I would say that you know when you're at college, you should go and listen to everything, listen to all sorts of music, all genres, all eras all instruments, go and have singing lessons, go and have guitar lessons, go and, you know, that, that is, I wish I'd done that. Go and sit in on singing lessons, sit in on string lessons, sit in on flute lessons as well, because you absorb 
everything that you hear and then you work out what it is that you want to do to become an individual and have your unique selling point, if you like. Well, I first found you in Bamboozle. Bamboozle, yes. That was a long time ago, but that was a great group. Yeah, and I did a podcast you did. on Bamboozle and I played excerpts from that. So Bamboozle was five flutes, string, bass and drums and we played all the old greats of of Gershwin. Yeah. It was very much, it was a crossover, but... It was it was early jazz. Yeah. You know, jazz from the 50s, 40s and 50s, but also we did classical uh, sort of arrangements, like mm-hmm. Flash of the Bumblebee, for example, Paganini, Motor Perpetuo. Yeah. You know, we, we had quite a lot of scary things that we, we did. And it was a fabulous group. And that made me realise that that was the music I loved. And I didn't know that when I was at college. Mm. It was when I joined the group and we had all these different sorts of music, I thought, oh, that's the music I love. Was it the first female flute ensemble that yeah, you were aware of? Yeah, we started the trend yeah. before everyone else jumped on the bandwagon. Yeah. There are lots of, of flute ensembles now, some really, really good ones. But we were the first. And we went, we played around Europe, we played in the States, mm-hmm. we did a recording, we, we had great fun. It was enormous fun and I just loved the music. So what, was that the, the first time you really believed that you could have fun with playing the flute? Because, but, and you've, you've spoken about this in the past, is that your, your whole work at, at music college was dedication to playing this flute. And then you come out into the big wide world and it's scary, you're a woman in a man's world. And then you find fun with Bamboozle. Yeah, it's because the music allowed you to be freer. Yeah. It was much more relaxed. And as a result of that, all my later recitals, I did crossover. I did traditional and Mm non-traditional. And those pieces went down just as well as the traditional pieces. And it made the concerts far more exciting, Mm -hmm. far more interesting for the the audience. Any regrets? Yes. Missed opportunities? Yeah, missed opportunities. The biggest one, there was a chamber group I was in called Aquarius which was a wind quintet and a string quintet with piano and percussion. And we, when it first started, again, I, we, everyone saw audition, it was advertised as this new contemporary group, it was contemporary music. And I, I got into the, into the group. And the first year, we basically played just for expenses to get sort of established. And then it just took off and we played again, all over the place. It was a fabulous group. We were playing lots of new music, but also lots of other things like Walton's Facade, for example, we did hundreds of times. And Carnival of the Animals and Peter of the Wolf. That was the group, it was that sort of, of makeup. It was tremendous, absolutely tremendous fun. And also we were groundbreaking in all the contemporary works we were playing. And then they got, from what I, this is my memory of it, they got a big grant or a scholarship to do a lot more and maybe expand. And, of course, members of Aquarius were really excited, you know, great, and they were going to amalgamate with, I think it was the Peterborough Orchestra. And so we all thought, this is wonderful. We're going to be in a, a bigger chamber orchestra, and it's go- we've got money, and it's going to be really exciting. This group eventually became the Britain Sinfonia. Oh. Yes, but, the big but, this is my regret, the wind quintet in the Peterborough mm-hmm. Orchestra were an established wind quintet. I think Nick Daniel was the principal over. Oh, right. All right. And he wanted his wind quintet to be the principal players of the Britain Symphonia. 
And so all the other wind principles uh. from Aquarius didn't get in. Mm. And I felt that it was the position was stolen from me. Never said that to anyone, but that's how I felt. Mm. Because the excitement in Aquarius was, oh, you're all going to love this. That's what the, the management was saying to us. We've got all this money. It's going to be so much fun. We've got all this work lined up. And then suddenly, actually, you're not in it. And there was a lot of bad feeling at the end of Aquarius. And yet it had been so good for sort of about, I don't know how long, nearly 10 years, I think. And we were the bonds. It was because of Aquarius that we got the grants. So that's, that's my regret. And moving down here, changing your life, you've touched on it in the past, and the reason why you had to leave, the retire from the academy. A difficult subject for anyone that has dedicated their life to music, performance and study. But how is your many years now? It's pretty bad just at the moment. Is it? Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty deaf just at the moment. But, you know, there are treatments go on and hopefully new things will, will appear. But it doesn't stop me doing the podcast. It doesn't stop me from writing books. And as I said in the past, you know, if you, when something stops you in your tracks, you either just give up, which you've only got one life, or you find a route around. Now, you were talking about this earlier on, in that life throws up obstacles mm. and you either let it stop you maybe you can jump over it sometimes or you go around it and I couldn't jump over mine no. so I've gone around it and I found I found another route and yes there's there's a grieving process because you know I've got my flutes next door mm. I've got this fantastic platinum, platinum flute <laughs> yeah. and I can't play it I've got all my music sitting there and all my flute books and I have to decide whether you know what do I do is it better for me to sort of make the break, sell everything off, and then just cut that link? But you know what, flute players out there listen, they know what it's you know what it's like. Your flute becomes like your like, you know, part of you. You're sort of it, you're, it's it's linked. It's linked to you, it's part of you. You spend more life. time with your flute than you do with your partner. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a huge part of my life for fifty years. Well, I, I remember coming down quite soon after that you experienced this and had to take a step back initially from teaching because the tinnitus and just the deafness and the balance was was horrible for you but even then you said I will find a way if I can't do this I will find something else that I can mm. enjoy well I think that's been the story of my life in that you because I auditioned for every competition going and competed wherever I could I'm very competitive and so I would always, that was my way of improving and getting further up the ladder. And if I didn't succeed, I'd try something else. So I've always been saying, OK, that didn't work. What do we do next? And so with this, you, it's the same thing. I haven't got any other choice. So either I break off completely from music, which is a terrible thought, mm. or... I do things like this and I write. Um, so when you're listening to music, how much of the beauty has gone with the noise in your head and the deafness? Um, if I close off my bad ear, because in many as you only get one bad ear, sure. generally speaking, I can listen. 
I was listening the other day to Philippa Davis' recording of the Bach's flute sonatas. Oh, aren't they absolutely, absolutely oh, stunning? And I just thought, I really, I would just love to be able to play those one more time. I had one wish, if I could just go and play the Bach sonatas one more time. So that, in a way, it's pure joy and pure sort of grief at the same yeah. time. And there's weird things, you know, if I close off, if I listen with my good ear and then close off my good ear, the pitch changes completely and all the bass goes. Oh, so it grief. all sounds sort of thin and tinny and absolutely bizarre. Can you make friends with it? No, you don't make friends with it. You just, you come to terms with oh, it. Oh, sorry, yeah. And you try and distract yourself from it, which is why I play a lot of golf. I was going to say, how does that affect you when you're playing golf? Because any sport has, you, there's, your hearing is important, isn't it? Yeah, but, but when you're outside and there's always some wind, then that dis distracts from the noise in my head. Does white noise tend to, does it counterbalance at all? No, I've tried white noise, that doesn't okay. work. No, but any noise of, of outside things happening helps distract me from this, the noise that goes on in my head. And so when I'm outside doing things, whether it's going for a swim, playing golf, mm -hmm. walking the dogs, I don't hear it as loudly. You improve really, really quickly. As you said before, you've taken the very similar principles to how you teach the flute to how you've learnt to play golf. Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Practice. <laughs> practice, 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 practice. That's all you have to do. You practice and then you put that practice into effect when you go and play. But it's, there's, you make more mistakes playing golf than you do... Well, that's a very contentious thing to say, but my experience with playing golf is I'm making mistakes all the time. Yeah, because we're amateurs. But amateurs means a love of. Yes. Yeah. But I haven't quite... I, if I'd started when I was 11, I'd be a lot better than I am now. But I'm not bad. You've won prizes. Have, You've won prizes. I have won prizes. <laughs> yeah. I'm still trying to win prizes. But it's back, back to finding a, something that you're passionate about. And then you, you put your energy into that. And, and life throws things at you that you need to deal with. And we all have to find our own way of, of dealing with it. So it might be our listeners, you've just had a rejection from an audition or you failed an exam, or you didn't get as good a mark as, as you should have done, you thought you should have done. And, you know, you've just got to think your way around that then. Pick yourself up and have a, have a different strategy and not just give up. You know, it's very easy at the first obstacle or the first hurdle to give up. And then it's not the way forward, you know. You've got one chance of it, this life. So you've just got to, you know, do your best. And you're a grandmother now. Granny, I know you're gonna, you don't like being called Granny. What do you call yourself? Omar. Omar, because that is Dutch for? Grandmother. Grandmother. Yeah. You're, yeah. An, you're an Omar now. I'm an Omar. I don't, do not answer to Granny. <laughs> I am going to be a Pops, I think. A Grand Pops <laughs> or whatever it is, when I become one. <laughs> so what does the future hold for you? Because you, you very much work in each day, don't you? You're very much a now person. Yeah. Well, I try and do quite a lot for the, for the podcast, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm still writing. I'm putting my energies into a, a teacher's manual. Oh, that'd be interesting. Is, um, That's going to be hard to put together, though. It's very, very, very hard. But putting, just putting thoughts down from a teacher's point of view on how to teach various aspects of the flute 
-hmm. and methods, ideas, how to be creative, just a different paths. It's going to be a long one in terms of it's going to take a long time. Mm. I want to put my knowledge and my experience to use rather than just be stuck in my head. Yes. Which is why I wrote the other books as well. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very proud of the books. I'm really proud of the expression of colour and flute reboot and kickstart flute. They're, they're the best things I've written. And I think that if, if anyone wants to know about how I go about practising and playing and exercising on the flute, you'd learn through those those books. Well, Colours of Sound and Flute Aerobics was in my repertoire. I had those two books and they are invaluable. The Flute Reboot is a, and the Kickstart Flute, a new additions to your sort of portfolio, but you can check, you can certainly, if you're a returner to flute playing, then this phenomenal manual that you, well, tutor, manual's understatement, the tutor. It's a method. It's, it's a, a method. method. And, and it's, it's for anyone who plays the flute, or as you said, or people who want to come back to the flute who already know how to play. Yeah. But it's everything I would teach my students at college. Yes. It's all in there. You know, so it's, it's, it's just, I just, just got, it was like an outpouring of my knowledge yeah. into a book. And you can, you can purchase that from... Uh, all the flute stores, all the flute shores. from Astute Music, who are the publishers. And that's astutemusic.co.uk, isn't it? Or .com, maybe. Oh, OK. But if you Google Astute Music, it comes up. Yep, and colours of sound and expressions of colour. Oh, expressions of ex yeah, colours of sound is a tagline, isn't it yeah. for me as well? Flutes, but yeah, expressions, expressions of, of colour and flute aerobics. Are... Flute aerobics and light aerobics, sequentials. Oh yes, I had, I had sequentials as well. Yeah, they're really good um, covers. <laughs> Your books always yeah. had really yeah. good covers. Yeah. yeah, they were they were lovely covers. Mm. Yeah. So Claire, wasn't too grueling, was it? No, not not too grueling, no. Right, I just, <laughs> on behalf of our listeners, I'd just like to say thank you for agreeing all those years ago, especially during dark times that you were having at the time with the sudden onset of many years, to agree to join, or actually do this Talking Flutes podcast. Well, if you, if you remember, you're the one that says, oh, let me see if I can do something, and then you came back and said... What about podcasts? Can you do that? And there we go. That was the beginning of Talking Flutes. You, you said we need a title, and I said Talking Flutes. Yeah. You said, there we go. Well, thank you for adding a gravitas to the podcasts. <laughs> thank you for putting up with me, because, again, I'm not the, the easiest person to work with. And, you know, let's see where, it, where, where this whole podcasting <laughs> thing takes us. We're, we've lasted four and a half years. We're and still it's been going. great fun. And it's still great fun. And we will just continue to do it until... We just run out of ideas, I suppose. Yeah. And if I can just flag up a very important podcast that's going to come up uh, probably in the autumn, mm -hmm. is that I'm talking to many people who've been influenced, who've got lovely memories of WIB, William Bennett. And oh. it's going to be a lovely chat about wonderful memories. It's going to be called Memories of WIB. So watch out for that one. It's, I've, I've already spoken to a few people and it's really lovely. We cannot underestimate the impact that that man had on the, the flute world. The influence on so many people, yeah. If you looked at his flutes, you'd wonder how he ever played with them. He would take a flute apart in them. And you'll have all these stories, take the yeah. flute apart. and I'll be talking yeah. to you too about him. So you save, save the stories. Well, he was the one that actually told me not to go to music college. He actually said, um, and you were speaking about it, he said, don't do that. I was in the National Service. I was in the Scots Guards. Join the Guards. <laughs> 
<laughs> so we've had that one influence on me. But, uh, yeah, thank you so much, Claire, for putting yourself through this. I hope it wasn't too gruelling. And on behalf of all the listeners, thank you for all your advice and continued advice and help in what is a beautiful passion that we all have, which is playing the flutes. Absolutely. Here's to playing the flute. Here's to playing the flute. (laughs) Take care, everybody. Thank you, Claire. You're welcome. Bye. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.